checking out college football on the West Coast. This is Get Off My Pylon, a look at the Pac-12 and more. Part of the College Gridiron Coast to Coast Podcast Network. Here's your host, Matt Zimmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the Get Off My Pylon College Football Podcast. This is your co-host, Matt Zemek, along with co-host Alex Blau. Why did week four in the Pac-12, Alex? And, uh, you know, full disclosure, Alex is a student at USC, so he was, he was sweating bullets uh, oh, during yeah, Matt, the USC-Oregon State game on Pac-12 Network. Not that, not that everyone had to was calm able me to down. see it, of course. You, you had to calm me down a few times, I do believe. Uh, well, I was I was very nervous, and no, not anyone not everyone could see it because of that darn Pac-12 network. Which, if I have two more years of that thing, I'm going to lose it, Matt. Well, but we do have two years, so you are going to lose it. Um, <laughs> you'll just have to get it back, okay? So anyway, uh, I you know I, where where do we begin with this? First off, absolutely no soul on this planet, not even the most diehard USC fan would have said, oh, USC is going to score just 17 points. It's going to have just one touchdown drive longer than 26 yards. Caleb Williams is going to complete fewer than 50% of his passes, um, and USC is going to win. Not one soul put all of those things together. Now, you and I and many others did say before this game that, hey, if the chips were down and USC was trailing by three or four points, late in the fourth quarter that Caleb Williams would deliver the goods. Now we did that. Like that was the one conventional wisdom prediction that was true in this game. Everything else completely out the window. Alex, your thoughts on a truly weird night in a, in a place for Vallis where things always seem to get weird for USC. It was, it was an extremely weird night. You nailed it. And there were a few things you know, I was I was never worried because, as you said, we mentioned. You know, I think uh, never worried. Of... What? Never worried. Well, hold on. Okay, 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 <laughs> okay. Looking back at it, uh, you know, they, I shouldn't have been worried because, as we discussed, Caleb is that guy. But also, I knew it was a matter of time before Jordan Addison found his way into the end zone. He's done it every game this year, practically twice, almost every game. Uh, so I was, I knew he was going to get there at some point. When I saw that touchdown come late, completely eased. Of course, that was after we spoke. And, you know, I think I sweat like seven pounds. I had no nails left. Uh, despite all of that, there were a few things in the game. I got to say, did you see that little uh, Bush push reference? I think it was a fourth down. The Nealon Nudge. He ran the for Nealon Nudge. That is, that is the moniker. Yeah. That's the name for that event. It, it you know, Nealon in USC. Nudge. If USC wins the Pac-12 at the very least, if not more, then that play gains iconic status. I mean, that's – and that's one of the things about this game. You know, it's early in the season. So, you know, it's not, a, it's not a November game. It's not a late October game. It's a late September game. So, USC now, over these next few months, like the Trojans need to validate this game. They need to make this game a long-lasting memory. They will do it if they reach – their goals, which, you know, they are in a very good position to do now, but now you just got to go out and complete the work to make this game matter more in the history books. But the Nilon nudge, that is the moment that fourth and six with Brett Nilon, you know, pushing Caleb Williams across the sticks. He probably doesn't get there without that push. Just great quick thinking 
And it, it is, you know, what the Bush push just, was 17 yeah. years earlier in South Bend, only this time unambiguously allowed by the rule book. And they didn't call it 17 years ago on October 15th, 2005. I see it as a great sign that, you know, kind of like when you see a, uh, it, it's just, it's, it's a good sign because this is a, a, it's a retelling of USC from 17 years ago and it's a rebranding, it's a rebirth. I'm happy to see that. You mentioned, uh, you know, making this game count as to where USC wants itself, wants to see its team go. The one thing that we saw consistently now through all the games is I think I read that Alex Grinch wanted 25 interceptions by the end of the season. Man, they are on pace for it. This, this defense may be the actual realist deal of the entire team. Uh, the DBs get turnovers in the red zone. They get them when they need them. Uh, and they are, they constantly bailed this offense out. They did. And I, you know, the, the key insight for me, Alex, about USC's defense, which, you know, did bail out Lincoln Riley's offense, you know, who saw that one coming, but the key point is, you know, when you're doing this in blowout wins over Stanford and Fresno state, you know, USC leading Fresno state by, by uh, 18 early in the fourth quarter, eventually winning by, uh, 28, uh, and and then, uh, you know, leading Stanford 41-14 midway through the third quarter, you know, getting, getting interceptions when you're leading by a bunch of points, that's one thing. To do it under extreme game pressure when you knew that the margin for error was small and when you knew what, that the offense was just not functioning well, that it had that one off night, which often leads to a loss, and it's, it has ambushed USC in Corvallis in the past. Just ask John David Booty. Just ask Mark Sanchez. You know, for the defense to do this in a big game when the margins were small, like that changes the conversation about this USC defense. No question about it. When you do it on, under these particular circumstances, it's a lot different from doing it when you're up 41-14. You know and the opposing offense has to throw every down. It's a lot. It's very different. And not to interrupt you here, Matt, but you were talking about these extreme conditions the USC team was facing. This is, in my opinion, the first real away game this SC team has seen because when they went to Stanford and went to the farm, there was nobody there. School wasn't even in session yet. The students weren't there. It was an empty stadium. Now they went to the Beavs and they saw that, man, this fan base was here. They were loud and people really don't like us right now. They were rooting against us, and they made their presence felt. And I think that, honestly, that, that seemed to rattle the USC offense a little bit. It, it riled up the defense, let me tell you. Thank God for that. And, and Alex, you know, this was just half of Research Stadium. You know, the other half, one side of Research Stadium was full. The other side was under renovation. There were no seats on one half of the stadium lengthwise. So just imagine if this was a full research stadium with both sides of the stadium stuffed, you know, that would have been a real nightmare And this. And yeah, this offense acted as though it had never heard crowd noise before. And Stanford was a walk in the park. So yeah, this was the first really daunting road environment of the season. And it brings up the point that, you know, hopefully Lincoln Riley is going to make adjustments in terms of getting plays in quickly in terms of having, you know, hand signals or other quiet mechanisms to operate smoothly in front of a night crowd the next really big, nasty road night game, Utah, uh, on October 15th. So we're going to see if the Trojans learn anything from their Oregon State experience 
against Utah. I want to quickly circle back on one other item before I then ask you another question about this uh, USC Oregon State game, Alex. You mentioned sure. the Jordan Addison touchdown. You know, if if you if I'm talking to our listeners here on the Get Off My Pile on College Football podcast, part of the uh, College Gridiron Coast to Coast podcast network, um, if you've been following the, the post game coverage uh, of USC Oregon State, you might have noticed this. If not, I'm going to mention it right now. Jordan Addison talked after the game about how on that winning touchdown pass with a minute 13 left, he didn't want to bring his hands up right away on that pass. And he explained it in, in these terms that as a receiver, if you bring your hands up, that is a visual cue to the cornerback or the safety that the mm-hmm. ball is about to arrive. So by waiting to bring his hands up, by not doing it right away, and by waiting for the ball out of his break, he prevented the Oregon State uh, safety and cornerback from making an earlier cut on the ball. Like the, Now, that is deep graduate school stuff in terms of yeah. how to play the wide receiver position. That's how much of a pro Jordan Addison is. And, and it's those little nuances that separate the very best from you know the merely moderately good you know, moderately competent. That was a fascinating detail uh, about that particular play. So, Alex, I, I love everything me... about that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say just briefly, I love everything about that because also it shows how much of, of a student of the game he is. Worst case scenario, you know, you're right. When you put your hands up as a wideout, it's, sig- it, it's a signifier to that DB, hey, ball's coming. I need to A, cut, make a move, and B, turn my head to face the ball. Otherwise, A, I'm going to get a massive flag here. Uh, and that's another thing, especially when he gets to the pro level and the PIs start being, you know, where the ball is, and that can be massive, massive chunks of yardage. Uh, that skill is going to come in handy because when he doesn't catch the ball, but the defender still didn't have enough time to get his head around and, and, and make a, a legal play on the ball, he's going to pick up a lot, a lot of uh, a penalty yardage on those DBs. No question. Here's the question I was going to ask you, uh, and it's, it's about Caleb Williams. You know, he did have the whole offseason under Lincoln Riley. You know, he knew going into this season he was the guy from day one. He did not have the benefit of that last year at Oklahoma being behind Spencer Rattler to start the season. So, you know, a whole offseason to learn, to soak up knowledge. And so for that reason, I was surprised by how bad he was for most of this game until the late winning drive. How concerned are you? How concerned should USC fans be about Caleb Williams' evolution? Keeping in mind that, you know, he he became the starting quarterback over a month into the 2021 season. So in in essence, he is pretty much concluding his first full season in terms of like 12 games. He's com- he's completed his first full season of college football and is still relatively young in terms of actual game repetitions. How, how concerned should USC fans be about his evolution this year? I'm not concerned at all. I, until this last game, I think the evolution we were talking about is from from second string to Heisman potential favorite in 12 games. Uh, the most recent game, sure, look, worst game this career. I think it was a fluke, but you can be, excuse my language, you can be damn sure that Lincoln Riley is going to fix whatever problem Kale was seeing, whatever ghost he's seeing. Uh, whatever pressure he's feeling, you know, yeah, we, we talked about it last week, the USC line. It's not what they wanted to start with going into the season. Um, 
But of course, that's that's the game. You have to be able to adjust. And I have full confidence that not only is he going to be able to adjust, but that this game was was a mere asterisk on what's going to be the the very successful uh, collegiate career of Caleb Williams. One more item on USC before we talk about Oregon State, because you know obviously this podcast focuses on Western college football. Oh, it's, not US, it's not just a USC in-house podcast. Uh, you know, obviously though USC, you know, making a, a, a big statement with this road win. Um, it, you know, with USC, one of the one of the doubts a lot of critics had about Lincoln Riley in 2022, not his whole USC tenure, but just this 2022 season was, wow, he has to remake this roster in one year, and you just don't see teams fully remake rosters on this scale and succeed right away. But we're seeing all these transfers really making a difference. Like the best highest impact uh, players on this team for the most part are transfers. Like the, the, the real notable exception to this is Tuli Tui Pelotu, you know, a returning mm -hmm. player from last year, but for the most part it's transfers and not just on offense either. Caleb Williams, Jordan Addison, Travis Dye, on defense, you know, this USC defense, which stepped up, we saw Solomon Bird, the transfer from Wyoming, pressure Chance Nolan on the interception by Sierra Wright, which enabled USC to score the, go the first go-ahead touchdown in the fourth quarter to take the 10-7 lead. Earl Barquette helped Bird. He's the transfer from TCU. He also was in on that pressure of Chance Nolan. And then you have Makai Blackman locking it down in the USC secondary. I mean, Eric Gentry, probably the best defensive player on the Trojans to this point through the month of September, all transfers, you know, and, and so the idea that, oh, you can't remake a roster in one year through the portal, USC is living proof that, well, actually you can't. Yeah, and I think it's the great Colin Coward who said, uh, you can only fix one side of the ball a year in the transfer portal. And I think Lincoln is taking that as a challenge, frankly. And the way this last game, this OSU game ended, it may be the defensive side of the ball that that has less issues. Now, let's not let's be realistic. Let's not overreact. The glaring issue of this SC team is the run defense. It can't stop the run. It hasn't been able to stop the run really all season yet. Uh, but if this 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 DB uh, this DB the secondary unit made up of these transfers. Man, they uh, they they're coming to prove that hey, we've revamped both sides of the ball, and it's about time that people start paying attention not just to the offense. Uh, All right, it's a shame, you know. I, uh, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just gonna say, you know, that before we before we move to Oregon State, um, I think it's a shame, especially given I know we don't talk about them much, but given how Michigan and Clemson, we saw Oklahoma. We saw Oklahoma fall, but Michigan and Clemson at four and five ahead of now number six USC. I thought this was a week that a dominant SC team really could have made a, a strong impact and and frankly surpassed uh, Michigan, who has a cake of a schedule and, and still struggled against Maryland, and Clemson, who who had that high scoring nail biter against Wake Forest. Absolutely. Um, you know, in, so in terms of Oregon State, now there are two schools of thought you can have on Oregon State coming out of this game. One is our quarterback, Chance Nolan, threw four interceptions, and yet we were still right there at the very end against big, bad Lincoln Riley head coach USC. That, that's mm -hmm. one line of thought. The other line of thought is we shut down Caleb Williams. We shut down that Cadillac mm -hmm. offense, 
and we still couldn't win at home at night. Uh, you know, in our, in our crib, when we had a lot of things going our way, when the USC offensive line was injured, you know, one of the things that went uh, under the radar in this game was that Justin Dietrich, he did, he, he played, but he was not a hundred percent. You know, he had a, no. he had a brace. And so you add that to the fact that Cortland Ford did not in fact play. We thought he would, but he did not. Bobby Haskins, not a hundred percent. Like the O-line injuries for USC are stacking up. That's a big reason why this offense isn't functioning. It's not the only reason, of course, but like Oregon State got USC at a vulnerable time and still couldn't seal the deal. Now you can say Oregon State played amazing in the secondary, which it certainly did. Had a great defensive game plan under coordinator Trent Bray. Certainly did. You can't dispute that at all. But you didn't win. So so is is it like we played these guys tough or whoa, we let a really huge opportunity slip away? Which which way do you lean on that question? It's it's both, Matt. It's a simple matter of, look, yeah, this defense, shout out the Beavers, because they did something that USC fans and, frankly, anyone who'd watched this Trojan team through the first three weeks thought was almost impossible in stopping this just team of Ferraris on offense. You know, Mario Williams, Jordan Addison, Travis Dye, Caleb. Uh, but at the same time, you're right. The offense and Chance Nolan specifically couldn't capitalize. And, yes, he was playing that extremely good group of dbs that sc has that we've been talking about but four picks in a game look you, you had a solid run game established with griffin and fenwick uh they both were splitting carries fenwick more of a just get the yardage late get the touchdown kind of guy and griffin was kind of doing a lot of the leg work but they were moving you know they just couldn't capitalize so i think it's a mix of hey good job defense offense you let us down yeah, one of the things that I keep going back to uh, as we close out this segment, uh, it, you know, whenever we talk about Pac-12 football, quarterback play just isn't at the standard that's that's needed for a lot of these programs. And Chance Nolan did not make the grade. I mean, you can, you, you know, four interceptions, let, let's put it this way, if he throws only two, like two interceptions isn't great, but if he throws only two instead of four, Oregon State probably wins and so that is just how the the bar is so low at quarterback play and you know we can criticize Caleb Williams for his play on on a lot of levels but one thing he has not done commit a turnover he has not committed one turnover USC has not committed one turnover and that certainly matters Um, so coming up uh, on the other side of this ad break we're going to discuss Oregon and Washington State really a similar game to USC Oregon State not in terms of the number of points scored, but in terms of a favored team on the road, uh, being in trouble late, escaping, and, and the home team letting a winnable big game slip away. That's on the other side of this ad. So this Friday, we have Washington at UCLA in a big Pac-12 game, and it is a very important moment for the UCLA program, and it's a, it's a moment where Bruin fans are expected to show up. It's a night game. It's a big game. You have ranked nationally ranked Washington coming to Pasadena. This is a hot ticket. And so when buying college football tickets online, you want a trustworthy outlet. Ticket Smarter is the place to be. Ticket Smarter is partnered with more than 100 universities as their official ticket resale marketplace. They've partnered with ESPN Events as an official partner. So for the best selection of NCAA football tickets for games such as Washington UCLA, on Friday, like that is that is a main event game in the Pac-12 this upcoming weekend. 
Ticket Smarter makes sure that fans from all over the country, all over the West, can experience the power and excitement of college football live in stadiums such as the Rose Bowl. So purchase your tickets for Washington UCLA or any other game in any other part of the country where you live. Purchase tickets quickly, securely, and at the best prices on the secondary market with the Ticket Smarter mobile app or at TicketSmarter.com. And here's a special offer for everyone on College Gridiron Coast to Coast. Take 5% off your purchase of $100 or more with our promo code GRIDIRON22. That's GRIDIRON22. Get 5% off an order of $100 or more. And that code isn't just one time. It's for as many games as you want this season. So check out the selections and pricing now with Ticket Smarter. And remember our code, Alex? Gridiron 22. Think smarter. Gridiron 22. Think smarter at Ticket Smarter. All right, you know, Alex. Matt, you're right. That's a that's a big game. If there are any UCLA fans, they better show out. Absolutely. Like, you know, the, the week one, a bowling green, 100-degree heat, like, why would you go to that game? But this yeah. is now Washington. It's in it's on the final night of September. Pleasant conditions in Pasadena. Like UCLA definitely needs to have 70,000 in the yard. I know that the Rose Bowl seats over 90,000. You have to have at least 70,000 in the park if, if you're if you're really serious about football. So and who that knows was how long they go undefeated. So they appreciate <laughs> it while you got it. So that that was part of our uh, our ad read for Ticket Smarter. So check those guys out. Let's now move to Oregon, Washington State. And so before our ad break, we mentioned that you know this was a uh, very similar to USC and uh, Oregon State. And actually, Alex, you know USC and Oregon they were both six point five point favorites for a good portion of the week in terms of the betting lines. And and both Washington State uh, and Oregon State had late leads. And they let them get away. So yeah. let's 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 start actually from the Washington State side before going to Oregon. So with Washington State, let me ask you the same question I asked uh, about Oregon State. Are you happy that you pushed a good Oregon team this well, or are you really unhappy that you let this game slip away? You know, I think it's funny. In the last segment, you talked about uh, the QB play in the Pac-12. And I think this year, because of a lot of new fresh faces that had been brought in through the transfer portal, I thought this would kind of be a renaissance of USC, or not USC, sorry, of Pac-12 quarterbacks, starting and leading with USC and Caleb. Uh, this was a matchup I was excited for. Cam Ward, uh, you and I both, I think, were pretty high on him going into the season. Bo Nix, uh, I know you and I were both um, on the same page as it came to, <laughs> as it came to Bo Nix. Uh, if you're this Washington state team, I think you gotta be happy. You rode this Oregon team out because yes, uh, you had a shot to win it. Um, and yes, it would have been nice if, if Cam Moore didn't turn the ball over twice. Um, but man, you were in it the whole time. You really gave this Oregon team uh, a run for its money. And frankly, 40 points, it, it was, it was a pretty good offensive performance from this Washington state team. Yeah, you know, in terms in terms of you know this game uh, from a Washington State perspective, I mean, I take I take the negative view. Like you're up 12 with four minutes left. That that needs to be a W. That that needs to be a game that you tuck away in the win column. And uh, you know, Jake Dickert, he, I mean, we've seen him coach defense pretty well. 
but you know, one thing that, that uh, became an epiphany for me in those final minutes is that, you know, really Washington state's uh, secondary, especially the safeties, like the safeties did not make tackles on Oregon receivers. It's one thing to allow a, a completion, but to not make the tackle after the completion, like that's how Oregon scored. It's go ahead touchdown. And one of the things that, you know, was a, was a problem for Oregon in this game was red zone offense. If Washington state tackles Oregon receivers right after the catch, Oregon has to run plays in the red zone with less space. And that's where Washington state, you know, is particularly strong because it doesn't have to defend nearly as much of the field. So the no, Washington state, the Washington state safeties, not finishing tackles after completions and really being out of position a lot in this game, especially when the Cougars were leading and they knew that Oregon was going to throw. I think that, you know, because Jake Dickert is a defense first coach, seeing that defense wilt late against a quarterback in Bo Nix who, hey, give him his due. He was great in a scramble situation. He completed a fourth down throw made some cash money plays, full credit to him, but you still gave Oregon more, frankly, than you should have. Not in the sense of that Oregon didn't earn its points. It obviously did, but not making tackles after the catch, allowing what, what were or what should have been 17, 20-yard plays to become 35, 40-yard plays. Like That is a giveaway for a team with a defense-first head coach. That, that's my main uh, takeaway uh, for Washington oh. State. Yeah, well, that's it's funny. I was actually going to talk about that when we got to Oregon. Uh, I was going to say I thought offensively this is one of what, one of their best games because they they were in the open field. They could move around. They weren't really confined or constricted uh, to the red zone where we've been seeing them have issues this whole season. Um, and and frankly, good on them if you can make the big play. And I know you you did say, hey, a lot of this was Washington State secondary not being able to perform. Um, but when you can make the big play in the moment, I thought Bo Nix, this was probably one of the first games he looked settled in that Oregon uniform uh, because he made he made the game winnings when the game needed to be won. One thing that has to be said, and, you know, I, I'm the editor of uh, Trojans Wire. I have uh, partners at Ducks Wire. They picked up on a story over the weekend, really merits uh, some study, that Oregon's yeah. offensive line is the best of the best in terms of keeping – the pocket clean for Bo Nix, that Oregon's pass protection is grading out as one of the very best team grades in the country. That is a, certainly a big factor in explaining why Bo Nix has had a relatively good season, that he's not really under duress that much. You have to include that in the picture. And so Bo Nix did not have that at Auburn with a shaky offensive line. So I'll admit that, you know, Bo Nix has exceeded my expectations and my skepticism a big part of that is the Oregon offensive line keeping him very clean Let, let's let's look at the other side of this matchup when when Washington State had the ball Oregon was on defense so Cam Ward he you know he has been up and down all over the place but you know he showed in giving Washington State a 34-22 lead in this game he showed his upside uh, and you know be, beating Colorado State that's no big deal Colorado State if anyone's paying attention, uh, got crushed at home by Cal Sacramento. Uh, so Colorado State is bad, bad, bad. So Washington bad, bad, State, bad, 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 bad. <laughs> Washington State uh, beating Colorado State really didn't tell us where Cam Ward was in his development. This was a step forward for him. 
uh, on Saturday, you know, against a legitimately tough Oregon defense. But, but at the very end, you know, in the, on that, in that money situation, the money situation that Bo Nix was able to ace with flying colors, Cam Ward throws a pick six and he, he telegraphs a quick out. You know, he looks, he looked, he immediately looked to the field, the left side of the field, did not see, you know, any, any defenders, or at least he didn't wait to survey who was out there. He throws a pick six done ball game. Um, what, what are your impressions of Cam Ward and, and, and what kind of quarterback you think he's likely to become? Like, do you think he's going to learn from this and stabilize and, and, uh, you know, be, gain a much higher ceiling as a quarterback or much like the quarterback Washington state had last year, Jaden Delora, do you think he's just going to be this live wire type quarterback who, you know, you, you got to live with the good plays he makes and you got to live with the bad plays he makes. And that's just the way it's going to be. How do you come down on Cam Ward? Well, I'm not sure his ceiling is too high, but frankly, I saw this game before that, that final pick six as, you know, him continuing to progress in the system because he looked very accurate. He had almost, I think, an 80% completion rate, and they asked him to throw almost 50 times. Uh, he had almost 400, I think he was 25 yards off, 400 yards. Obviously, the killer, as in any close game, especially when you throw a pick six, is the turnovers. Um, you're right, he does have that live wire kind of play, and I think that's kind of his ceiling, is 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 a better, a better version of that same play. But I, I do think we're going to see him after this game, we're going to see him learn from it. We're going to see him keep getting better as we had been seeing all season up to this point. All right. We have more coming up on get off my pylon after this ad break. So college football season, we're pretty much done with September. We just have a few Thursday night games and that Friday night, Washington UCLA game. And then we're in October. So it's getting really serious. And so as we get into the teeth of conference play, you know, your chances are that, your game, the game that your favorite team is playing, is going up against a rival in the same region, the same part of the country. That's what conference play is all about. So, hey, you have coworkers in the office or just uh, any of your friends or neighbors that go to rival neighboring schools, you might want to place a wager, all right? You might want to put some money on your favorite team. So BetUS has been a pioneer in the sports book industry for over 25 years paying their loyal customer base quickly and securely. Go to betus.com, betus.com, and take advantage of an offer we have on our shows from College Gridiron Coast to Coast. You'll receive a 125% sign-up bonus by using our code COAST22. That's COAST22. You put $100 in, get an additional $125. Put a $200 in, you get an additional $250, and so on. So BetUS has the NFL. MLB postseason is pretty much one week away. NBA and NHL seasons are just about to start and any other sport you can wager on. For college football season, stay with BetUS throughout the season for college football betting action. You get a $125 match bonus for initial signups with the code COAST22. B-E-T-U-S. You bet. You win. You get paid. All right, Alex. So as we continue with our, our survey of Western college football here on get off my pylon, I'm just going to start with a few comments uh, about the Arizona Cal game. First off for our listeners here on get off my pylon, the college gridiron coast to coast podcast network, which you can 
uh, listen to at Red Circle, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, check out our full network of podcasts. You know, for those for listeners around the country, if you follow Pac-12 football for any appreciable length of time, you know that Arizona Cal games just get crazy for whatever reason. If this is like one of the mad scientist games in the Pac-12 uh, whenever it happens. You might remember that Arizona uh, scored on a Hail Mary, a walk-off Hail Mary to beat Cal several years ago. Wildcats scored over, uh, I think it was over 30 points in the fourth quarter. Just really crazy, zany things happen in Arizona Cal games. And so while people out here in the West expect Arizona Cal games to get really weird and wacky, no one had Cal scoring 49 against Arizona. No one. It's, it's like the other side of the coin with no one expected USC to score 17 against Oregon State and win. Uh, but Cal did hang 49 against Arizona. Jordan Ott, running back, 274 yards. Where did this come from? And, I mean, yeah. Ott looks like a very, very special player. But, but the, the deeper story here is – where, where did this come from in terms of Arizona's defensive line getting gashed to this extent? I mean, Arizona didn't get gashed by North Dakota State. It didn't get gashed by San Diego State. No, Cal did it. And, and you know, Cal's offense did not look especially good against Notre Dame. Uh, I know Notre Dame yeah. has a good defense, but Notre Dame doesn't have a great defense. Jaden Ott didn't Dame. look good against Notre Dame either. Yeah, so, you know, like th this really did not come from anywhere. Keep in mind that Cal Alex didn't, didn't even score 30 points against either UC Davis or UNLV in its for in its cupcake games uh, early in the season before the trip to South Bend and before this game against Arizona. So like this really did come out of nowhere. Uh, so, I mean, Cal is certainly exceeding my expectations by a lot. I thought Cal would be a, if not the worst team in the Pac-12, I think Colorado was, you know, the preseason pick to be the worst, and that has certainly uh, lived up to expectations. Now, Matt, I do got to say real quick, real quick, the the UC Davis Cal game. I do remember uh, Jaden Ott. I think he went over a hundred yards. I remember Plumbing having at least three TDs. I feel like that game may have been. Uh, uh, I saw a little bit of spark from the Cal offense in that game. I think that game may have been a little better than you're remembering it, but you're right. Frankly, until this game, there was a lot of stagnation. Yeah. So, so Cal certainly making the grade to a much higher extent than I expected. Let's also keep in mind folks that Cal is without its best defensive player. Uh, Brett Johnson who was supposed to be a force on the front seven. They don't have him, And yet, it, and yet the offense was able to carry the day against Arizona. And if you're Arizona, you know, you're still ahead of schedule overall in, in terms of how the season is going to have uh, a couple wins in your pocket against, you know, what is a legitimately challenging schedule. Like none, none of these games have been cream puffs. Uh, San Diego state on the road, San Diego state was the mountain West runner up last year, then Mississippi state, then, you know, the FCS dynasty from North Dakota state, and then Cal, no cream puffs in that lineup. So to be two and two, like Arizona is still in the conversation for a bowl game. And Jed Fish has certainly improved the program. But boy, if, if Arizona finishes five and seven and narrowly misses a bowl, the Wildcats are going to look back at this Cal game uh, as a real missed opportunity uh, in the Pac-12. So, so Alex, um, 
you know, we, we have to talk about the Mountain West. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're so, you know, get off my pylon is about Western college football, not just the Pac-12. We, we, like, we like to just throw them in there. We like to. Well, I mean, you know, we we have we have to devote at least some time yeah, each week, and so our our Mountain West topic for this week, um, you know, with Utah State being bad, Utah State, the defending conference champion, uh, lost at home to UNLV, Wyoming lost to BYU, uh, just not a lot of really good stories in this conference so far. The biggest story is the the disaster that's unfolding at Boise State. Boise State. Yep got its clock cleaned by UTEP. Now, let's just set the table here, Alex. UTEP was coming off a 17-point loss to New Mexico. New Mexico, earlier this season, lost by 17 to Boise State. So if you're doing transitive property, you're thinking, okay, Boise State by 34. Instead, UTEP beats Boise State by 17 points, a result that just came completely out of nowhere. You know, UTEP's been having a very difficult season. UTEP lost uh, 31-13 to North Texas, then had the, the significant loss to uh, New Mexico by 17. And that UTEP team outplayed Boise State for 60 minutes on Friday night. And we had the news on Saturday that Boise State head coach Andy Avalos fired his offensive coordinator and former Boise State coach Dirk Cutter uh, came in uh, – as the replacement as Boise State's new offensive coordinator. So that so that is a real surprise. Uh, and yeah. then on the heels of that move from Saturday, we had the news on Monday morning that longtime Boise State quarterback, been in the program for four years, Hank Bachmeyer, he's transferring. He wants out of there. He wants to get out of there mm. right now. He wants to find a, a, a landing spot before his collegiate eligibility is all used up. So this is a tire fire, Alex, and it obviously brings up the, the point that Andy Avalos has been an absolute disaster for Boise State. Doesn't seem to have any idea what to do with the program. Doesn't seem to have any answers. And we, of course, we have this situation at Auburn where you know you know that Brian Harson is going to be fired by the end of the year. You know, it could be in the middle of the season. It could be in November. It could be in early December. Before the the ball drops in New York and Times Square on New Year's Eve, Brian Harson will not be the head coach of the Auburn Tigers. So you know where no. I'm going, Alex. Should I know Brian Harson and Boise State should they should they remarry? You know, should you know that they, they divorced, but but should they get back together again? Is this is this something that ought to happen? So there's a few things here. First, let me say. When Boise State brought in Dirk Cutter, that's in my mind when I said, oh, man, there may be, like, something must be really wrong here. Because, and I'm not sure if you, I don't know if you know this, uh, Matt, but Dirk has a son, Davis Cutter, who's actually a wideout at Boise State. Uh, so my thinking is, man, maybe Davis reached out to him and said, hey, you got to come help us out because our, our team and, frankly, our coaching staff is in shambles over here. Now, when we get to Auburn, uh, Brian Harson, yeah. Now Auburn, sure, sure, beat Missouri 17-14, but did you really beat Missouri? Because it was 17-14. Um, I, I and think because Missouri Auburn, fumbled on the fumbled on the one inch line for no good reason. A guy reaches the ball when he didn't need to reach the ball. Oh, there were walking into the end zone and he fumbles. Plethora of reasons. 
Um, that being said, though, I, I don't think Boise State is and Harson are right match again. Frankly, I think Harson thinks he's maybe a little too big, even though it hasn't worked out at Auburn. And Boise State, I think you just need you need a new face. You need someone fresh. Um, and you need some change, honestly, because it's not working. I don't think Dirk Cutter's the answer. Happy to see him there to try to bring some uh, some balance. But, uh, man, someone new, someone new, not Harson. Don't bring him back. So just uh, one more follow-up on this, Alex. Are you generally opposed to the idea of, you know, reunions? Like we saw the Bobby Petrino reunion with Louisville, for example. All right, you did get a Heisman Trophy out of it with Lamar Jackson, but that was it. You know, nothing happened after that. Momentum really faded after Lamar left the Cardinals. Uh, you know, we, we occasionally see, you know, reunions, you know, second marriages work out, but often they don't. Do you, is it like yeah. a hard and fast point of principle that, you know what, you don't rehire the same coach or, or you know, are you uh, someone who allows for flexibility if certain uh, pairings actually could be beneficial to a program the second time around? I don't, I don't want to say never, uh, for instance, you know, had, um, post the Helton firing and things not worked out in Seattle, Pete Carroll wants to come back. Sure. Let him give him the keys. You know what? Make him the principal president of the school for all I care. Uh, but most of the time in my thought, the game is always evolving unless you have a legend as a coach who, who had dominant extensive success and wants to come back. The game has evolved. Your team needs to be evolving too. Uh, look for that forward change and, and look to bring your team into the next wave. All right, Alex. This was a very fun and interesting week of Pac-12 and Western college football. I mean, we're not going to talk too much about the Mountain West because that conference is just suffering right now. But, you know, we are going to include some Mountain West content every week on the Get Off My Pylon College Football podcast. Uh, we want to just make sure, folks, Check out all the podcasts on the College Gridiron Coast to Coast podcast network. You got Yards and Stripes with Price Atkins and friends talking about the service academies. We have Mark Rogers with Big Ten Paradigm, Mark Ennis with his ACC podcast, Tyler Jones with his Big 12 breakdown, and the other podcasts that are under the banner of College Gridiron Coast to Coast. Want to check them all out. All interesting informative podcasts all focusing on a different segment of college football uh, in the United States, like Pigskin and Burke Ends with Patrick Netherton, giving you Southern Fried SEC-style uh, analysis on college football. You want to check out all of them at Get Red Circle, Spotify, Apple, Google. There are, there are feeds and links at all those places where you listen to your podcast. So for Alex Matt. Powell, Go ahead. Matt, I love getting off my pylon, if I may, but that may be my favorite new name of the podcast. Can I get that SEC name one more time? Burnt Pigskin ends and Burnt like... Ends. So that if, you know, if you want to, if you want to follow what our our enemies in the SEC are doing, because you know we don't, there's no love for the SEC out here in the Pac-12. Oh, no, I mean, no, no, Patrick no. Patrick Netherton is our friend, but you know, the, obviously love SEC him. teams, uh, you know, they're not our friends. If you want to follow SEC football, Patrick Netherton, Pigskin and Burnt Ends. That's the place to be. Anyway, that's all part of the College Gridiron Coast to Coast podcast network. Uh, follow those shows all throughout the year. Be on the lookout. Follow the hosts of these various programs. You can follow Mark Ennis on Twitter, Tyler Jones on Twitter, Price Atkinson on Twitter. Pretty easy to find where those guys are. 
and, and check out what they're saying. Uh, we also have Jason Powers with the Florida Football Insiders podcast, Gators, Seminoles, and the disaster with the Miami Hurricanes. You definitely want to listen to Jason and what he's putting out each week. So that's all on the College Gridiron Coast to Coast podcast network at the various places where you listen to your podcast. So for Alex Blau, this is Matt Zemek signing off for this week. We'll see you next week on the Get Off My Pylon College Football Podcast.